in just a few hours we'll be back here and uh, we'll be celebrating the homegoing. I told you two weeks ago, didn't I? In this world we will have trouble. Where do we turn when Jesus is at the center of our lives? For those of you that don't know, um, Thursday night we got a phone call. I happened to get a phone call. I was doing some things with Caleb and my phone kept ringing, 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 ringing. I said, don't answer the phone. There's nothing I can do about it right now. And uh, come to find out it was the police calling and Tom and Sandy in reference to Taylor having passed away. And so the funeral will be here this afternoon at, at 4 o'clock. Taylor was 21 years old. Um, she wasn't promised a, maybe two days that she would live, and, but God gave her 21 years. But I remember saying to you two weeks ago, look around the room. There's a great chance that uh, by the time it ticks to 218, that there will be those of us, some of us in this room, that won't make it. But little did we would know it would be a 20-something-year-old. We expect 60, 70, 80-year-olds. But... The Lord is the one that numbers our days. The Lord is the one that numbers our days. We've been talking about God's Word, and it makes it really important for us today as we continue in our discussions about the best year ever. Because again, we think the best years are those years that are filled with things on the outside that are great, that are magnificent, that are wonderful, that are celebratory. But the reality is that we will face difficult times in life. And so where do we turn when life seems to turn upside down. The best years are those years that we have an opportunity to have peace in the midst of the storm. Caleb said to me the other night, he went, he wanted to go with me, and I took him with me at about 1 o'clock in the morning when we were leaving as the, uh, as the funeral home was leaving. He said to me this, he said, Dad, in the midst of such a terrible time, there seems to be such peace. Very true. We're human beings, and we have feelings, and we have emotions, and those are, those are real. But still in the midst of the storm, there's peace when you're walking with Jesus. Sandy sent me an email. She's had, been having a really, really difficult time. And she said, this morning, I finally have peace. I have peace. We're not talking about God's Word so that we can become better students of the Word we're talking about God's Word so that we can become, come to know the Master better. Because the more we read His Word, we're able to come to understand who, for whom the Word was written about. And so that's what we've been talking about, is how do we come to know God better? How do we come to, to hear His voice? How do we come to, to recognize that voice? 2 Timothy chapter 3, we talked about this uh, last week, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And if you don't have... Uh, some notes. Uh, I think are really important for you those to have them. And I apologize about last week. We didn't know until afterwards that there were some of those notes that weren't they were that were incorrect. If you will go uh, online to the website um, to the media, um, they we have now started including the congregational notes as well as the missional community notes for you. So if you want a an, a, um, a updated version from last week that's got the corrected version. You can get those. Uh, but if you don't have notes and you'd like to, if you raise your hand while we're talking, Ms. Sheila will make sure that you guys have a copy 
But let me read for you. This is what Paul, Paul said this to Timothy. It's very interesting what he had to say because he said this. He said, um, he said listen, Timothy, I want you to understand that, that Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by, in, inspired by God and it's useful. In other words, the words that you have are extremely important. It's not just another good book. It's not just something that I've given you that I just want you to sort of read and, and sort of say, hey, that was, that, was something, that was a great read. But I want you to understand that it's inspired by God and it's useful. Now, the Greek word that Paul used there is a very important word. It's a word um, that it's, it's called aphilimos, which means profitable or helpful. And what Paul was saying, listen, just don't read it, but understand the significance of it. It's profitable. It's valuable. It's very, very, very important. And he goes on to say, listen, it's important. It's useful to teach us what's true, to help us realize what's wrong in our lives, to correct us when it's, when it's wrong, and to teach us what is, what is right. And he goes on to say, God uses it to prepare and equip his people for every good work. If you want to know how to live, if you want to know how to live, man, if you want to know how to keep yourself pure, teenagers, if you want to understand how you should act and how to keep your ways, how to keep your ways pure, what the psalmist said in, one, in Psalms 119, he said, how do you keep your way pure? By living according to God's word. That's what he says. So if you're interested and want to make sure that you're keeping a straight line, read God's word, live by it. It's useful. If you got problems in your relationship with your spouse, raise your hand. How many of you got problems in relationship with your spouse? You all are a bunch of fibbers. How many of you had problems with your relationship with your spouse? See, it's because you've been reading God's Word. That's why you don't have problems. You know how to deal with it. If you got problems in relationships, if you got problems in your business, if you got problems with your finances, go to God's Word. It's useful. It's helpful. It's profitable. It's valuable. It's not just a good book. It's not just a good book with moral principles and some good points. It's God's Word. It's inspired. And Paul said, Timothy, man, you've got it. It's your fingertips. It's right here. And we've got it as well. You've got it as well. But this is what I know about you. Some of us are afraid of it. Some of us are afraid maybe to go to a Bible study or maybe to go to a time of teaching or to maybe to go to a, a place where God's Word is being talked about where you might be questioned because you're afraid somebody might ask you a question and you don't know what to say. Phil Egner, you ever been in a place like that? You're afraid. And so what you do is sometimes we just don't do anything. We just sort of go and we enjoy sitting and listening and we go out the back door. But when it comes down to sitting and picking up God's Word and spending time in it and studying, it's the last thing from our minds. You're afraid somebody might go, but how do you know it can be trusted? And the only thing you know to say is, well, just because. Well, just because what? Well, I don't know, just because Dan McCondy said I could trust it. Well, that's not, a good, that's not good enough for a lot of people. Just because why? So I thought, you know, why don't we take just a few minutes and why don't we talk about some ways, some reasons that we know that God's Word can be trusted? Because I want you to have some things that I think are really helpful for you today. So what I want to do is I want to give you seven reasons that you can know that God's Word can be trusted, that it's right, 
and you can trust it. I wish I could take uh, credit that I've sat down and I've done all this research, but I haven't. I've taken some, some things that some great theologians, that some, apolo- uh, some, uh, some apologists and some people have put together over the years, and I've recorded that, and I've, and I've copied some things, and I wanted to be able to share some of that with you today. Some guys like Josh McDowell, uh, and you can, Josh is a, is a tremendous uh, theologian and apologist. You can find more of his information on uh, josh.org. He's got a book, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Great book in reference to um, the truth of God's word. Um, but God, Jesus himself said the word of God was so important, so, so vital, important. If you remember what he said at the end of his teaching, he said, listen, the guy that, that holds on to, to the words of these and he applies them to their life is like a man who builds his house on a rock. And when the winds come and the storms, which they will, he doesn't have to be afraid because it's going to be all right. As difficult as Thursday night was in the past couple of days, and as strong as the winds have blown and the waves have been, I've known that it's going to be okay. I've known that Tom and Sandy were going to be okay and that John was going to be okay and that the family was going to be okay because their house hasn't been built on the sand but a rock. So can I talk to you today and give you maybe seven reasons that you can hold on to God's Word? Can I do that with you today? Take your little little, uh, handouts and why don't we start out. Let me give you the first reason. You You can know that God's Word can be trusted. Write this down. Historically accurate. God's Word is historically accurate. Sometimes people will say, well, that's just a bunch of stories it's made up. I mean, how in the world? You mean flood, burning bush, uh, crossing the Red Sea, all these different stories that we find in the Scriptures. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in a fiery furnace. Come on, please. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. The Bible is very accurate in its historical documentations. The psalmist said this, For the word of the Lord holds true, and we can trust everything he does. Historians say this, there's really three things that need to be considered for something, for something to be said. It's to be accurate and true. they got to pass really three tests. I'm going to give them to you really quickly. Number one, an eyewitness account, which we also could be called internal evidence. In other words, did somebody see it, or is it just hearsay? Is it somebody hearsay? You know, I heard, a, I heard, I heard, I heard a story and somebody else told a story. It doesn't take long for a story that's been told over time to get sort of way, way away from the truth. Are you with me? You ever played the, the gossip game when you, you were young? We need to play that as adults, don't we? <laughs> you could take one person, tell them a story way down here, and they got to whisper it in the ear and whisper it in the ear. And by the time it gets down to the end, it's something totally different. So one of the tests that, that uh, historians say helps prove the accuracy is what they call an eyewitness test or an internal evidence. Most of the Bible written by eyewitnesses, not hearsay. The gospel, for instance, written by people who actually walked, talked, and saw what Jesus did and heard what he said. That's why the, that's why the scriptures line up in the gospels. Same stories because they were there. Second thought in reference to how do you prove that it's accurate and true, recorded and copied with great care, also known as bibliographical test, examination of the text transmissions. 
In other words, was the original text, what we have now, how close is it to the original text? Um, was it close or has there, been a, has there been some movement away from the original text? Is the text close to what the original text was? Has the, check, has the text been changed over time? And you wonder why God has gifted some people with the, with the gift of details. God would not have chosen me to be part of writing the scriptures. I just wouldn't have been one of those guys. But there were people that God chose to set them aside that they would record and they would write with great accuracy. I thought it was very, it's very telling to know that the Jewish scribes recorded the documents. The way that they said that they recorded, recorded them was unprecedented. They didn't transcribe word for word, but letter for letter. Wow. Not just word for word, but letter for letter. Luke, who's a physician, that was his trade, wrote the book of Luke uh, and Acts in the New Testament. That's a man that knew his, was all about details. Very interesting to go back and see that back in the 1940s and 50s, they had the findings of what they call the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't know if you know anything about those ancient documents. Very, very interesting. Uh, documents that had been hidden um, away in caves for, for some 2,000 years. They said the documents were written between the years of 150 B.C. to around 70 A.D. They had been hidden in the caves when the Romans were going around and they were burning and destroying the cities during, their, during those times. They, uh, a little shepherd boy uh, was one of the ones that helped discover those documents. Um, wow. I even heard that uh, some of the documents were sold in classified ads. Isn't that something? Very, very unusual. But the documents, believe it or not, those documents that they found contained every one of the Old Testament books, pieces and parts of every part of the Old Testament books except for the book of Esther. The entire book of Isaiah was found. They think that the book of Esther is just in another place. They've yet to find it. But it was exactly what we have today. Exactly. Not pieces and parts, no changes, but exactly what we have today. Unbelievable. They matched perfectly because extreme care was given to the copying of the documents. The third test, the archaeological evidence or the external evidence test. This determines whether the historical material confirms or denies the internal testimony. In other words, has what's been written, when what we find, does it match? They continue to find archaeological dig after archaeological dig that continues to confirm everything in the Scripture is true and as written. This is what the Bible has to say in Psalms 85.11. Truth shall, bring, shall spring out of the earth. There was a Jewish archaeologist by the name of Nelson Gluck, and he said this. He said, and I quote, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a single biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And then there was another historian, archaeologist by the name of Sir William Ramsey. Um, he was not a believer. Ramsey, who was a skeptic, made a decision that he was, going to, he was going to disprove 
the uh, validity of the scriptures. And so he set out uh, to go to Asia Minor, and he took the books of Luke and Acts because they included a lot of historical facts, uh, places. He found out that there were like 32 different countries, 54 different cities, and nine different, um, nine different um, islands that were named. Every one of them were exact, true. At the end of his finding, he became a believer because he said what he had discovered was unbelievable. He said it was unexplainable. I thought it was very interesting, the quote, and I read his quote. I began with a mind unfavorable to it, but more importantly and more recently, I found myself in contact with the book of Acts as an authority for the topography, antiquities, and society of Asia Minor. It was gradually borne upon me in various details. The narrative showed marvelous truth. Luke is a historian of first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. This author should be placed among the greatest historians, Sir William Ramsey. Scientific accuracy. God is creator, and he is creator not only of the universe, but the laws that govern the universe and everything within inside of it. So when the Bible talks about scientific stuff, believe it or not, it is correct. Truth stays the same, but science changes. Anybody go to school, you were told something later on down the line for it to change? How many planets, solar systems, stars, I mean all these different things? Yeah, lots of stuff. The Bible is accurate scientifically. This is what the psalmist wrote in Psalms 148. He said, let every created thing give praise to the Lord, for he issued his command and they came into being. He set them in place forever and ever. His decrees will never be re revoked. The Bible isn't a science book, but it's accurate scientifically. There were those people who believed that the world was flat. Can you believe that? Around the time of Columbus, I don't think it's so flat. If they would have just read the scriptures, this is what they would have found in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. God sits above the circle, the severe of the earth. The Bible told us that the earth was round. They would have just read it. What about this? Another common belief that was that the earth had to be held up. Maybe you remember the Greeks. The Greeks said, who was it that held it up? Atlas. The Hindus. Don't ask me where this came from. But this is the truth. Back then, the Hindus believed this. They said that um, the, earth, the earth sat on the back of an elephant, which stood on the back of a sea turtle, which stood on the back of a sea serpent who swam around in the ocean. That's what the Hindus believed. The Egyptians, now they're smart people, smart people. They believed that the earth sat on, on five pillars. Now Moses was raised in an Egyptian home, yet we find none of this in his writings. And yet what we do find in the scriptures, in the earliest of scriptures, not in the book of Genesis, but in the book of Job, we find this. God stretches the northern sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Well, how in the world did Job know that? Did Job know that because, because he was smart? Because he wrote it? No, because he wasn't the author. God was the author. That's how he knew that. 
Another belief during the early days was that we could count the numbers of stars. One guy said, listen, there's 1,022. I can count every one of them. A few years, a few years later, a guy came back and he said, listen, there's 1,026 stars. And then Galileo uh, came around and he said, you know, there's, there's tens of thousands of stars. But if they would just read the scriptures, Jeremiah 32 says this, 33, 33, 22. The stars of the sky cannot be counted. What about medical science? Do you remember back uh, in the 1400s when they say that, that in Europe some 30 to 60 percent of the people were killed by plagues? Lots of people because they didn't understand how germs spread. But if they went back to the Old Testament, they would have saw that in Leviticus it said the priests will quarantine a sick person for seven days. Why? Because they knew disease spreads, sickness spreads. Get him away from you. How many of us probably need to get away from people right now because there's some sick people around us? Don't be shaking hands. Don't be shaking hands and hugging necks when somebody's sick. Don't do it. Now you got a Bible verse that you can use. Ah, the Bible says I can't do that. <laughs> Psalms 12, 6 says, The words of the Lord are flawless. They're flawless. And when we believe it, it changes our lives. Like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times is what the NIV has to say. Here's another reason that we can trust God's word. Man, you listen to this one. God's word can be trusted prophetically because, because prophetically it is accurate. Can you imagine the amount of risk that went in of the prophecies being shared and told and declared and yet them to not become true? The amount of risk that would have been involved? A thousand plus prophecies that we find in Scripture, and over 300 of them deal with Jesus alone. Prophecies that were detailed prophecies like this. Where would Jesus live? Where would he be born? That he would flee Egypt, that he would come riding in Jerusalem on a donkey. David even prophesied that Jesus would be crucified before crucifixion was ever even made known. Well, how in the world did that happen? Where in the world did David come up with that? But we find that in the Psalms. They say that the possibilities of these prophecies being fulfilled in human terms is nil, none. But it wasn't written by man. It was written by God. I want to give you some prophecies, and I'm going to give them to you really quick in reference to Jesus because I think these are important. But before I do that, this is what the Scripture says in 2 Peter chapter 1. You must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding, from his own initiative. But no, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. You can trust them. Here's some prophecies about Jesus' life that have been made and were fulfilled. He would be born of a virgin. Made in Isaiah chapter 7, fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1. Born in Bethlehem. Well, how in the world would that happen? Because Mary and Joseph weren't from Bethlehem. They were from Nazareth. But God would use a man by the name of Herod to call about a census. And that was how they would get from Bethlehem or from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5 verse 2, Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 is where it was fulfilled. He would be the healer of the blind and the needy. Isaiah chapter 35 and we see it fulfilled in Matthew chapter 11. What about his death? What about prophecies in reference to Jesus' sacrificial death? That he would be beaten and spat upon. Isaiah chapter 50, 50 we find it fulfilled in Mark chapter um, 
Mark chapter 14, that he would be crucified along with sinners. Isaiah chapter 53, we see it fulfilled in Mark chapter 14. That he would be buried with the rich. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9 talks about that. In Joseph of Arimathea, we find would fulfill that in Matthew chapter 27. What about the prophecies of Jesus' victory over death, that his resurrection... Psalm 16 talks about that and, and prophesied it. We see it fulfilled in Mark chapter 16. His ascension to heaven prophesied in Psalms chapter 68, fulfilled in Mark chapter 16. His exaltation of God's right to God's right hand talked about in the Psalms, Psalms 110, fulfilled in 1 Peter chapter 3. Jesus knew. He knew what would take place. He knew what would take place because he knew what had been prophesied. He knew that those last days would be filled with difficulty. He knew what would take place and that he would be arrested and that he would be betrayed. And the scripture says in, Isaiah, in Zechariah chapter 13 that Jesus knew the Old Testament prophecy and he said this, strike down the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And it was during his arrest that Jesus said something like this, am I a dangerous revolutionary that you could, you could come at me with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you just arrest me in the temple? I was teaching there every day. And in Matthew 26, 56, he said this, But all of this happened to fulfill the words of the prophets as it was recorded in the scriptures. And at that time, those that were following him deserted him and fled. The scriptures are true. And guess what? There's still prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Still prophecies yet to be fulfilled. This is what John said in Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel said to me, everything you have heard and seen is trustworthy and true. The Lord God who inspires his prophets has sent his angel to tell his servants what will happen soon. It wasn't their intelligence. It wasn't their good luck. But it was the work of the Holy Spirit that penned those words. There's more. The Bible has a unified theme. What about that? I mean, it's up easy for a couple of us to get together and conjure up a really good story about the fish that we caught or the deer that we killed or, you know, the time over here. I mean, we can come up with all kinds of stories. You get a couple of people together. But what happens if it's more than, say, 40-plus people over 1,600 years? It's scattered over maybe 12 different countries and three different continents. That's a little bit different, yet they are unified in its theme. It's impossible. Yet they wrote the same about the same person with the same theme. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 24. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from, from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus said, He said, Listen, all right, let's, let's, let's take here what you guys have. And let me point out a few things of where you can find me in the, in the, in the written pages. He's throughout the written pages. It's throughout the written pages. Not just the New Testament. Another, another way that we know that the Scriptures is true, Jesus trusted the Scriptures. Jesus himself trusted the Scriptures. Man, we're good about standing up and saying, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? But I tell you what, when the going gets tough, how many of us love what Jesus loved? Jesus loved and he believed in the scriptures. He trusted the scriptures. 
How can we trust Jesus without trusting those things that he trusted in? Jesus trusted the scriptures. Matthew chapter 5 verse 18 says, I tell the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. What about this truth? It survived all attacks. The scriptures have survived all attacks. Why do you think God's word is under attack to begin with? Because the devil himself knows the power of the written word, especially when those who study it begin to apply it to their lives. I mean, it's been disputed, denied, debated, outlawed, destroyed, yet it still lives today. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because of the power that it has to change lives. To change lives. 1 Peter chapter 1, all scriptures say people are like grass. Man, doesn't this hit home? Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that has been preached. We don't have to be ugly and you don't have to be rude when talking about God's word. And you don't have to be ashamed of the gospel. You just have to live it out. We ought to enjoy inviting people into groups to be able to have discussions about God's Word. Not from, a, not from a conflictual standpoint, but because we want to know Him more. Because we want to hear His voice. Because we want to say, God, I, I want to know you in a better way. That ought, to be, that ought to be natural for us. Not unnatural. Yet how many, how many of us are afraid to do that because we, we don't know it? What will be the final authority in your life? The Word or the world? I have these conversations. What will be the final authority in our life? Are we going to hold on to God's Word and say, this is final, this is true, this is absolute and nothing else? Or what the world tells me, which continues to change, continues to change, continues to change. Our feelings change. But God's Word is true all the time. It withstands the culture. It withstands the time. It withstands all generations. It stays the same. The last one that I'm going to give you is one that you can put to the test. You don't have to wait on somebody else to put it to the test, but you yourself can put this to the test. Let me just give it to you. The Word has transforming power. You want to know? It's true and it can be trusted because it has transforming power. God's Word will change your life. God's Word will rearrange your life. God's Word will, will, will turn you upside down. God's Word will transform your life. Is there any amens in the room? Anybody's life been transformed by reading God's Word and applying it to your life and saying, Jesus, it's the final authority in my life. Anybody? Trans Listen, there is no greater thing that you have to debate or to have a conversation when somebody says, man, God's Word's not true. And you go, oh, yes, it is. Well, how do you know that? Because I am a result. I'm a result. 
Do you know who I am? Do you know where I've been? Especially when those around you can see it. You have no way to have a conversation if they've not seen Jesus in you. You have nothing to stand on. But you know what? Oh, my goodness. When all of a sudden it's gone from being the Word to all of a sudden it's becoming to to impact your life because you're beginning to apply it and things are beginning to happen. You don't have to tell people that your life is being changed because people can see it. Man, they can see it. Man, what's what's happening in old Rob Sullivan's life? Man, that joker's, whoo, he's turned upside down. I mean, can you, could, did you see Jeff McIntosh the other day? That's not the same guy that I, I once knew. What about Paul Kennedy? That's a, man, that's another guy. I don't know who that is. I mean, because he's different. He's spending time in the Word. He's different to Luke. Man, man, Luke used to be, man, he was something else. But I can tell something's different, man, because I'm transformed, because God has gotten a hold of my life. God's Word is true. It's powerful. It's transforming. Jesus said this. He said, to the people who have believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful in my teachings. He didn't say those people who go to church. He didn't say those people who tithe. He didn't say those people who go and serve it beyond the walls. He said, the people that remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Doesn't make an awful lot of sense. We spend an awful lot of time trying to hold on to things, don't we? But what did the scriptures have to say about that? When we hold on to stuff, we end up losing our life. When we lose our life, we end up gaining it. That just doesn't make an awful lot of sense. But that's the truth. When we try to hold on to ourselves and we go, no, 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 God, I got it. I can handle it. We lose it. There is no freedom. There's bondage. But when we say, man, listen, I pour myself out. And God, if that's what you say that I need to do, and that's what your word says, I'm submissive to that, and I'm going to place myself underneath your authority. And when we lose our life, the scripture says that there is freedom and we gain. It doesn't make any sense, but it's what the Bible has to say. And it's transforming. What are you holding on to? And are you free? Last thought is this. Let's just say that you were, the police were to enter this door today and they were begin arresting people. Let's just say they started walking in here and putting people in handcuffs and they started escorting us out. And let's just say that, that all of a sudden Christians were under attack. And let's just say that that all of a sudden you had to start giving names of people that would give evidence, that would stand and share a testimony of the fact that you are truly a follower of Jesus, the disciple of Christ. So here you are sitting in a court of law, and the judge that's seated before you said, would you call your witnesses to the stand? Witnesses come up. Would you bear witness to this man? Do you know for certain without a shadow of a doubt that he's a believer or follower of Jesus Christ? What would they say about you? Would there be enough evidence in the court of law to be able to convict you for being a Christian? What would your closest friends say? 
What would those that are, that are your associates have to say about you? What would they say? What would your children say? What would your parents say? What would your neighbors say? What would your business partner say or those that you work with? What would your boss say? What would your employees say? Would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a follower of Jesus? No Jesus, no change. No Jesus, no change. It's a journey. It's a journey. And all of us are on that same journey. Do you know him? If you don't, what is it that keeps you from making the most important decision of your life? See, I don't know why you came today. Some of you are full right now. To the place of overflowing. If you don't know Jesus, what an opportunity in the midst of this to say, Jesus, I want to trust you. I don't understand it all, but there's something that's going on in my heart, and I am broken, and I recognize that I'm a sinner, and my life is out of control, and I need you. If today that's you, you're the only one that can cry out to him and say, Jesus, save me. And the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Walking out of here and saying, well, I'm going to go do some of this over here, and I'm going to go over here and do some of that over there, that doesn't save you. It's recognizing your sin. Recognizing who Jesus is and what he has done. And placing yourself in submission and humility to him and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. And if that's you today, man, I'd love to embrace you after the service and to talk to you. Where you're seated at, there's some, there should be some yellow cards. And if you've, that's a decision that you need to make, there's going to be a video we're going to watch really quickly about the men's retreat. You have the ability to fill that out. If you've got a prayer request or something that you want to say, please let us know, and you can put it in these offering boxes. But I'd love to talk to you about your relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're here and you just got a prayer request. Our staff prays every Monday over every prayer request that comes in. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I've made a decision to follow Christ, but I've never been baptized publicly. I want to make my decision to follow Jesus. I don't want to hide in the closet anymore, but I want to make my decision to follow Jesus publicly. 